Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop takes a deep dive into this weekend's readings. Saturday is the memorial of Mary's presentation in the temple. It's the only time we celebrate something that's not found in the Bible. Then on Sunday, it's the Solemnity of Christ the King. The show wraps up with listeners submitted questions on papal conclaves, dogma, and the Garden of Eden's location. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Did you get your exercises in this morning? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, just my spiritual exercises. I, I, I do better than that with that than I do with my physical exercises. Priorities. Yeah. Okay. Got to have yeah, some priorities. Yeah. But I do got to work on the physical. <laughs> yeah. What, what is your preferred method of getting some exercise? Um, like stationary usually chewing or? my food. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I do like walking. I like riding a bike, uh-huh. uh, hiking, kind of hard to do in Indiana. So things that are actually no mountains here. kind of productive where you actually are doing something, not just walking in your house, like in a yeah. treadmill or no, that is so boring yeah. for me. Although I need to do that more. If I have something else while I'm doing it, like pray the rosary or right. or even watching the news on TV or something on sports mm-hmm. on TV, then then I can do it. But just yeah. to do it without anything, I, I just, no, it's just terribly boring for me. Right, right. All right. Well, we want to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, Brian Lytle. Thank you so much for your support of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes and all of those that support us. We appreciate you. One thing. On November 21st, we will have Mary's presentation in the temple, which you talked maybe in more detail on a past episode. If people want to go back and listen to it, it was in 2018, November 21st. So that would have been the actual feast itself. But I thought maybe you'd give us a, a little summary of that, a, a brief recap. It's a difficult feast in some ways, the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the temple. It's a liturgical celebration, not only in the Catholic Church, but also in the Orthodox churches. Actually, it's a bigger deal in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. It's really a memorial in the Catholic calendar, not a feast. But what is strange about it is the event is not recounted in the New Testament. It's found in an apocryphal book, an apocryphal text called the Proto-Evangelium of James the Proto-Evangelium of James, which was dated probably somewhere in the second century. What does that mean? It's not canonical. It's not recognized as inspired by God. Uh So there were a lot of these apocryphal works that had stories and legends and Mm -hmm. things like that, but were not accepted by the church as inspired by God. So that's why it seems strange to me that we have on our liturgical calendar, it's the only feast on the liturgical calendar memorial that's based on an event that's not in scripture, but is in an apocryphal book. Uh Now, maybe it happened, we don't know. We know by tradition that according to this text, the names of Mary's parents, Mm -hmm. Joachim and Anne. Uh, So that can very well be true. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, no. And according to this Proto-Evangelium of James, Joachim and Anne were childless 
and they received some kind of a message from God that they would have a child. And when they had their daughter, they brought her to the temple in Jerusalem to consecrate her to God. And that's what, uh, and, and that story is also in a few other apocryphal texts, but it's given more detail and, and first recorded in this Proto-Evangelium of James. It's evidently, according to some of these later versions, Mary was about three years old when she was brought to the temple. There was also this idea that after she was consecrated to God, she remained there until she was 12 years old. So, I mean, it's, I don't think there's any historical evidence for that. I would kind of doubt that, but who knows? I mean, I don't know. We have no way of knowing, really. Hmm. But the feast originated back in the first millennium. I, I think it was, there was a church built in Jerusalem, the Basilica of St. Mary the New, and that church, that basilica was destroyed by the Persians in the seventh century, but it seems that they must have been observing this feast there. And then it became part of the liturgical calendar in the east, and then it spread to the west by the ninth or 10th century, I believe. It's celebrated in the Eastern Orthodox Church on November 21st as one of their 12 great feasts. We don't give it that kind of honor. We don't see it as that uh, one of our high priest feasts. We we just consider it a memorial, not okay. a not a feast per se. But it is a I think theologically. I think what we're really celebrating is that Mary from her very childhood was dedicated to God. She was filled with grace. And even though we have this apocryphal source, I think the message, the meaning, is what's most important in celebrating her presentation because she was totally given to God. She was totally dedicated to him. And I think that's what the presentation in the temple signifies. Also in that same episode, again, you can go find it. It's November 21st, 2018. If you scroll down at uh, redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. In that same episode, we talked about the upcoming solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, which has to be the coolest name for any feast day. <laughs> not, not King of the World, but King of the Universe. I love it. Yeah. And the readings are a little bit different this year than they were in that last conversation. The first reading this year is from Ezekiel, and it's got some connections with the gospel. thought maybe you could uh, break those down a little bit for us today. Yeah. Well, it's just to remind everybody, the uh, Solemnity of Christ the King is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. It's the last Sunday before the new liturgical year begins. The new liturgical year begins on the first Sunday of Advent. Since we have a three-year cycle of Sunday readings, the readings this year are are different. So every three years, mm-hmm. this is we're we're presently in we're ending year A. So these are the year A readings for the Feast of Christ the King. And maybe before I look at those readings, remember this was a pretty late feast. It was not, the Feast of Christ the King was not established until 1925. Hmm. So it was established by Pope Pius XI 
And it was basically because of the growth of communism and fascism. Remember back in the 1920s, this is before Hitler and Mussolini, I, uh, but they were gaining power and the church had lost the papal states by that time. So we have these awful government, uh, awful things happening. And the Pope was really recognizing or calling the church to recognize that ultimately no political human leader is our sovereign, that our true king is Christ who reigns as king forever. And this kingdom that he established demands discipleship. Hmm. So he was really counteracting the, uh, those kind of pagan kind of ideologies, these the national socialists and the, the fascists. And he, I thought it was very providential that he established this feast at that time. The readings this year, which are what you were asking me about, the first reading is from Ezekiel chapter 34. We talked about Ezekiel before in one of our episodes several months ago when we were doing the major prophets. And if you recall, this was the time when uh, Israelites were in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel brings them a message of hope that God will look after them, that God will restore them to their homeland. And at that point, he had already talked about the bad shepherds, that they had their bad leaders. And he was talking, he was encouraging the people and teaching them that God himself would be their leader hmm. and that he would be their shepherd, that he would take care of them, whether they were wounded or weak or or sick, here they were in exile, to trust in God that he would be their shepherd. So that's the reading that we hear on the Feast of Christ the King. And I'll just read the reading. It's chapter 34, verses 11 and 12, and verses 15 to 17. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will look after and tend my sheep as a shepherd tends his flock. When he finds himself among his scattered sheep, so will I tend my sheep. I will rescue them from every place where they were scattered when it was cloudy and dark. I myself will pasture my sheep. I myself will give them rest, says the Lord God. The lost I will seek out. The strayed I will bring back. The injured I will bind up. The sick I will heal. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy shepherding them rightly. As for you, my sheep, says the Lord God, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. Now, this idea of, of the shepherd was already used in the Old Testament and actually Near Eastern literature as a metaphor for a king. That's why this reading is on the feast of Christ the King. There's, mm -hmm. always, there's this idea of the shepherd king. And of course, the shepherd king that Ezekiel is writing about is God himself. And we remember in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Of course, in the New Testament, St. John picks up this image in his gospel. When he presents Jesus as the good shepherd. So Jesus says, according to St. John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for his sheep. So we see this prophecy of Ezekiel really being fulfilled in Jesus, the good shepherd. And the kingship of the shepherd is concerned above all with love and healing and tending, bringing into unity the scattered sheep. Um, so this is Christ the king. He is the good shepherd, this kingly portrait of Jesus. Now, when we move to the gospel, we have a very famous gospel mm -hmm. that we all are familiar with in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, the parable of the last judgment. Now, interestingly, we have at the end of the Ezekiel reading where God says, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. Now we have in the gospel, Jesus, the shepherd, who is the judge. Mm -hmm. He says this refers to himself as the son of man. And he is the judge. He separates the sheep and the goats. He separates those who are blessed and those who are cursed. Mm -hmm. And of course, how does he do this? The criteria are really love. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. Ill and you cared for me. In prison and you visited me. You know, whatever you did for one of the least brothers of mine, you did for me. And then those who didn't give him food or drink, etc., he says, depart from me, you were cursed. Okay, so those are the goats. So there's this separation of the sheep from the goats. Hearing these readings on the feast of Christ the King reminds us of that our king is our shepherd. Mm -hmm. And that's just an aspect, very fundamental aspect of the kingship of Christ. Our king is the one who became the servant of the least of his brothers and sisters. Our king is the one who was condemned to death on a cross. So his throne is the cross. <laughs> and for Christ the king, he teaches us that to reign is to serve. That's what he's calling us to mm -hmm. do. We have a kingly role. The kingly office of Christ as Christians, you know, we have a role to follow him and to imitate his service, to be attentive to the cry of the poor, the weak, the outcast. You know, he's prepared the kingdom for us. We read in that gospel, he says to those who actually gave food to the uh, hungry, etc., he said, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And that's the word of blessing that, that we all hope to hear right. at the end of our lives. The king of the universe has drawn near to us as the servant, the lowliest. He's calling us to follow him in our love and service. Yeah, and I think this is one of those readings as well that reminds us that 
our actions matter, and it's not just faith. But in in this example, Jesus is judging based on how we acted, how we treated other people, and that whatever we do to those people, to others, we're doing to Christ, either for good or for bad. What we don't do to others, we're, we're not doing for Christ. True faith works through charity. Yeah. You know, similarly, earlier in that chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel, we have the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Hmm. Think about that. They all had faith. Mm-hmm. Okay, all 10 of them. But five didn't have oil. Uh-huh. The other five did. What's that oil? I think it's the good works. I think it's the love. Mm. So faith without love, you can be excluded from the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Did you think of that connection with I had it, parable? No. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some of your questions about papal conclaves, changing dogma, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question, what is a papal conclave and will there be another one soon? Well, a papal conclave will only happen after the Pope dies or resigns. And that's when all the cardinals of the church under the age of 80 gather to elect a new Pope. And it's done in secret. It's completely closed off. Conclave comes from a Latin cum clave, which means with the key. So they're locked behind closed doors with a Hmm. key. There's a whole process of how the votes are done, et cetera. But when the next conclave will be, only the Lord knows. Uh It will be after Pope Francis passes away or after he would, if he chooses to resign like Mm -hmm. Pope Benedict did. But we don't know. Okay. They don't have a conclave for any other reason other than to papal conclave right they have sometimes they have consistories which are meetings of the cardinals but that's different from a conclave okay and would that be to decide important things or whatever the pope would want yeah i mean i don't even think pope francis has had any consistories of cardinals i think technically when he creates new cardinals i Although I don't know if Pope Francis has. He would invite all the cardinals and that they'd have a consistory at that time. But I don't think mm. in recent years there have been consistories of cardinals. Well, especially with the recent naming of cardinals, maybe bad timing to get a right. bunch of exactly. people together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't know if they're going to be actually physically going to Rome or not. Okay. Uh, the Pope can, by decree, create them cardinals. They don't have to be there in person. Oh, okay. Because normally that would happen in Rome? Yes. Usually there's a consistory, and Uh during the consistory he makes them cardinals, and then usually there's a mass where he might present them with their 
the cardinal's beretta, the hat, or mm-hmm. the or I think a, a ring. But that's all ceremonial. It's not, you know, necessary. It's just the Pope declaring them cardinals. Because there's not a specific ordination mass no. or there's no laying on of hands or anything to become. No, a it's not a sacrament. Mm-hmm. No. They're they're bishops, basically. Yep. They are bishops. So there's no nothing sacramental happens. Is it just a title or is it more than a title? It's just a title. Okay. I mean, it's a title, but with certain responsibilities. Sure. And the most important is the election of a new pope. Okay. All right. Our next listener submitted question. Can dogma be changed? No. The church's magisterium has the authority from Christ to define dogmas. Mm-hmm. That's a form when a doctrine, when a teaching is such that everyone is obliged to adhere to it in faith because it has to do with a truth that is contained in divine revelation or it has a necessary connection with a truth of divine revelation. And when it's defined, when it's proposed in a definitive way, that's what is called a dogma. It's something that's proposed as true in a uh, definitive way. So they must be believed. Okay. So not all church teachings are dogmas. They are still authoritative, important teachings, but this is the highest level, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. because it has to do with divine revelation and is something that's not optional. Can they be changed? No. There are times where there's a development, for example, in the language that we use, the way the faith is understood more deeply. Mm-hmm. We have what's called the development of doctrine. You know, Cardinal John Henry Newman. Development doesn't mean that there's a change in the teaching. It's just development in our understanding. Uh, So we have the deposit of faith, but we have a development over time where the church has come to an increasingly better understanding of her doctrines. Uh, We see that in the early church, for example, the Christological heresies. Remember heresies Mm. about Christ and the church had to develop using human language the uh, formulations that we have, for example, in the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. those are dogmas of faith. But there was a development of the doctrine, greater, deeper understanding. And of course, it's within, you know, it's, it's within the task of the, of the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, that that is done. So would there be a specific number of dogmas? It's not like the Ten Commandments or the you know, the 439 dogmas of the Catholic Church or something like that, it is, would it be more kind of truths that are taught within the context of like the catechism or something like that? Right. Yeah. They would be truths that uh, are essential for our faith. For example, all the truths of the creed. Okay. But that wouldn't be exhaustive. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also truths in scripture that are not explicitly in the creed. Mm-hmm. Um You know, one of the dogmas of our faith is the perpetual virginity of Mary Mm -hmm. or the dogma of the assumption of Mary, 
or her immaculate conception. Those are all dogmas. They must be believed. They are part of divine revelation, even if they are not all explicit in Scripture. Mm -hmm. But they are truths that have a necessary connection with what's contained in divine revelation or may be implicit there. Can you give an example of something that wouldn't be a dogma? Well, there are other church teachings that have not been divinely revealed in the sense that, well, let me give you three categories of teaching. This might be more helpful. Okay. You can have doctrines, dogmas, doctrines, and disciplines, and theological opinions. That's four things. Okay. Okay. So disciplines are mainly things about that we see, for example, in the Code of Canon Law, they are particular disciplinary measures. That's something different, okay? Theological opinions are also different. In other words, there's different maybe teachings of Scripture or teachings of the church where there's a variety of ways of looking at it, varieties of theologies, and they're within all within the bounds of orthodoxy. If they go beyond the bounds of orthodoxy, that's a problem. Okay. So the teaching authority of the church is the guards the orthodoxy. But theologians can penetrate, can study, can, especially with the, the tools of scriptural exegesis or the teachings of the fathers of the church or even using the tool of philosophy and come to a greater discussion of various truths. For example, the teachings that we have on religious freedom, some of that was through development of doctrine okay. and the work of theologians. Um, so a lot of teachings that that we have, that we are called to assent to, have not been defined as dogmas. There's a question, for example, in the area of morals would be one example, you know, where we have teachings, for example, against things like direct sterilization mm -hmm. or something like that. That's tied to the divine and natural law. But we don't really speak of those as dogmas of faith. That's more moral teachings. Okay. Okay. So they're important authoritative teachings. You know, the the church teaches that the ministerial priesthood that only males can be ordained priests. That was a doctrine. Is it a dogma? Well, it got to the point where Pope John Paul II pronounced that this is something that is definitive. Mm -hmm. That is something to be held by all, and therefore he kind of raised the, the the level of that teaching. I mean, the teaching was always there. Did he elevate it to the the idea of a dogma? No, but as definitive teaching, nonetheless. Okay. So yeah. So I hope that I know it's kind of challenging to kind of understand this, but I think the key thing about understanding what a dogma is is that it's it's something that's dealing with a truth contained in divine revelation. Okay. Okay. And it can't be changed. It could maybe can't be, be changed. refined, would you say? It can be... Uh, you said developed. Developed like a, in the sense clarified. Of, of clarified or more deeply penetrated. Okay. Yeah. All right. Another listener said, I have a friend who's committing a grave sin, and I have been stalling talking to him about it because it would be an uncomfortable conversation. Is it a sin to stay silent, or should I muster up the courage and talk to him? I'd recommend mustering up the courage to talk to him. I do think that it's really an act of charity 
if someone is doing harm, committing a serious sin, is, is doing harm to himself or herself or to mm-hmm. someone else, and I think out of love, uh, that's where fraternal correction comes in. Mm-hmm. It's oftentimes can be uncomfortable. It's how you approach the person, mm-hmm. not in a way that's condemnatory or a way that is, I mean, it has to be out of genuine concern, genuine care. Now, they may reject your words. Mm-hmm. They may reject your counsel. But I think that we do have a responsibility to work for the salvation of our brothers and sisters. Doesn't mean that you constantly harp on the sin or whatever that they're doing. That may be counterproductive. It's important to pray for the person, but I think to give good counsel and it's done out of love. That's the key. Okay. I suppose the relationship that you have with a person might change the approach as well. Exactly. I mean, sometimes it's harder when it's someone closer to you, mm-hmm. a family member, right? a sibling, you know, because you're afraid, well, maybe they'll reject me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really, it is a little bit risky sometimes, and it does take courage. Sure. All right. Another question submitted. Where was the Garden of Eden? Well, we've talked a lot about Genesis. We have. (laughs) The first three chapters, first two or three chapters of Genesis on this program. And I think it it is helpful to to think back about about those first couple chapters because that's where we read about the Garden of Eden. So it has to do with this, again, what kind of literary genre – are mm-hmm. we talking about in these first couple chapters of the Bible? There's so much there in those first chapters of Genesis that I love to talk about them. But remember, it's a literary vehicle, a literary story that is conveying these profound truths. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of symbolism in those first couple chapters. Even the names like are symbolic, you know, human beings with these symbolic Hebrew names and like the name Adam, Adam, what does it mean? It means human being, Mm. you know, what does Eve mean? It means mother of the living. So we have this narrative that really is explaining various aspects of the human condition, universal questions about life, about the meaning of life, the meaning of, you know, where did sin come from? Why do people suffer and die? What's our place in the world? All of these kind of ultimate questions are there. So it's really beautiful. And when you compare the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis to pagan myths at the time, you have a big difference. I mean, the whole notion of creation and how God created everything good, you know, how sin entered the world, etc. The fact that human beings were created out of love and made in God's image and likeness, which shows the immense dignity of every human person. I mean, these are really important truths. So the creation accounts in the book of Genesis, which include the Garden of Eden, which is what the question's about, mm-hmm. they contain in symbolic and narrative language, profound teachings about human existence. 
And they suggest that human life is grounded in three fundamental relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with our neighbor, and our relationship with the earth. Hmm. These are three vital relationships that have been broken. And that's the story of, of the fall. So the original harmony between the creator, human beings, and creation was disrupted when Adam and Eve presumed to take the place of God, refused to acknowledge their own limitations as creatures, and that distorted their relationship with each other. It distorted their relationship with God, and they left the garden. Mm-hmm. It distorted their relationship with the earth. So the whole idea of the Garden of Eden and where is it, you have to kind of realize we're dealing here, as uh, St. John Paul noted, with this, this mythical language that expresses deeper content. So John Paul uses that word mythical language, or also Pope Benedict. It's not meaning that these are fairy tales. No. These are stories. These are narratives that have mythical language but teach profound truths, profound truths about human existence, truths that are really, I I mean, you can read some excellent uh, commentaries on the book of Genesis. There's just so much there in those first three chapters. If you read Genesis chapter 2, you'll notice that it's a different creation story Mm -hmm. than than Genesis chapter one. I mean, there are two different strands of tradition. One is called Elois, the other is called the Yahwist. So anyhow, unlike Genesis one, in Genesis chapter one, you have the earth created first, Mm -hmm. and later the people were created, the first humans. But if you look at chapter two of Genesis, God creates a garden. Well, no, in chapter one, God creates the garden. But if you go to to chapter two, it's, it's the reverse. You have the humans created first, and then the habitat, the garden. In any event, you have in the garden the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a lot of symbolic things there, mm-hmm. the tree of life. And while they were in the Garden of Eden, they had access to that tree. Their life was in harmony. Their life wasn't threatened. It only became threatened when they were expelled from the garden. And that tree of knowledge of good and evil, when they decided that they wanted to really take the place of God in their pride. They disobeyed and ate of that tree. When you read the description of the Garden of Eden, it talks about how God creates this garden. It's kind of like a park with trees, and it's kind of very common in the ancient Near East that they had these kinds of park-like gardens the kings had. So they probably had this in, in mind, these beautiful gardens with a lot of trees and they could get shade from the sun, et cetera. And of course, the two great trees that I mentioned. It goes on to talk about how Eden is located in the north, according to the passage in Genesis, and the four great rivers that surround the world flow from it. And only two of the rivers that are mentioned can we identify today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The other two, we don't know for sure what they were. They're called in the book of Genesis, the Pishon and the Gihon. Hmm. So they do give this specific geographical area in an attempt to historicize the story, but it is a story. 
Okay, so that's important. Now, those who have a literal understanding of the book of Genesis, you know, are, you know, looking for where this garden was. Uh So you find some who are saying, okay, if the Tigris and Euphrates were two rivers that flowed from it, then it must be in Iraq, present day Iraq, or others have other opinions. But as I said, most scholars see this as, as not literal. There's another question, though, that when I hear that question, I, I want to think a little bit about what science says. Uh-huh. Because if we're talking about the Garden of Eden, okay, I've been talking about what the book of Genesis says. But if the question is, where were the first humans? Mm. You know, we've talked about this before. Yeah. Science shows us that it was Africa. You know, as the human beings evolved, we know that at some point they evolved from these homonyms that they evolved in Africa. And as the, the bodies evolved, the anatomies, the, you know, the, the larger brains, you know, for the upright position, et cetera, somewhere along the line, we know that as, as they grew, they, we have this, the species Homo sapiens. And that the Homo sapiens in Africa then began to spread out of Africa and across the globe around 120,000 to 70,000 years ago. Hmm. And we have genetic studies about the original ancestral population, et cetera. But what made them, what's the human difference when you look at the hominin evolution? It was the ability to think symbolically, to reflect on oneself, to appreciate beauty, all of these things that are specific to the human being that makes us different from animals, okay? Mm-hmm. This, this is an, you know, our reason, our free will, the ability to enter into relationship with God. What does it mean to be in the image and likeness of God? And of course, this capacity to reason, to think symbolically, to reflect on self. All of these things, you know, we would consider part of the creation of the human soul. Mm -hmm. So on this evolutionary process, after centuries and centuries, thousands of years, of development, of the brain, et cetera. It got to the point where this physical development, there was the uh, possibility that this creature that had evolved through the infusion of the human soul would image God himself. Hmm. So we look at Garden of Eden. Where did that happen? Okay. So from science, at least at this point, we know that it would be in Africa, that that was where, that's the first evidence we have. That's just based on fossils? Fossils, yes, and the genetics. Okay. You know, at first they had this idea that there were multiple places around the world. There was the, uh, what did they call it, the multi-regional model. The multi-regional model was a hypothesis back in the 50s where they said that there were these different ethnic groups that evolved independently of each other, like mm-hmm. the Native Americans 
or the native Europeans, I should say, or native Asians, native Africans, that these all evolved kind of around the same time, but in these different areas of the world. Well, thanks to modern genetics, we know that that's incorrect, hmm. that that multi-regional model is not correct. And it's been replaced by what's called the out of Africa model. So we now have firm evidence that anatomically you, modern humans evolved in Africa and then they migrated out of Africa. Okay. The oldest artifacts that we have of these creatures having actually this symbolic thought, language, all those things, really we have the Blombos Cave in South Africa. And that's dated back to about 75,000 years ago. And also we see some articles near there about the same time. So the human difference, so to speak, what makes humans different from these other hominems really came about, you know, there as far as we know. Maybe there'll be other discoveries. Um, so this first community that made this breakthrough where you have these creatures with freedom, reason, rationality, these rational ad, uh, animals. And I guess you could say, well, wherever that was, was the Garden of Eden, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, if that's what they mean by the question, where did humans begin? Uh -huh. Although, again, what we talk about the Garden of Eden, it's really looking at the, at the biblical story. But in any event, what the biblical story communicates is the truth about the human person and the human community, about sin, about God's relationship, about, you know, all those things. Do you think it's dangerous for people to interpret Genesis literally? I don't or know that it's first couple chapters, dangerous. It's just, I think it's harmful to evangelization mm -hmm. because young people turn away from the faith if they, if they say, you know, I have to, in order to be a, to believe I have to deny science, right? You know, I mean, Catholicism is also always about the compatibility of faith and reason. Yep. So we always are open to scientific discovery. I've, I've met young adults who said they've left the church because they can't believe mm -hmm. in a historical, literal view of Genesis of Adam and Eve and the garden and the serpent and everything. And I said, well, that's, the church doesn't say you have to believe that that's literal truth. Right. I said, and they're like surprised. Yeah. And I said, no, I said, there's beautiful truths in these chapters. And they get really excited when they hear that. Yeah. And then they say, you mean that, you know, it's okay for me to, to believe what I learn in biology class. Right. I said, yes. I said, you know, I mean, there's various theories about human origins, scientific theories, and I, I find it fascinating. But, you know, you have these more discoveries all the time. But, yeah, this is very compatible with our faith. Yeah. And then someone said to me recently, oh, Bishop, that's not really. And I said, uh, what the authoritative teaching church. I said, have you read Pope Benedict? Mm -hmm. Have you read Pope John Paul II? I mean, they are so, you know, they have many beautiful things about uh, about this, and even before them, you know, even Pope Pius the Twelfth, Pope Pius the Twelfth, even this was even before the Second Vatican Council, was very open to the scientific evidence that we always have this faith and science together. The Church allows science to 
inform our understanding of what God has revealed. And so we should be open to new scientific discoveries. I find it very fascinating. And it's when you get into the study of theology, which is faith-seeking understanding, there is so much theology in those first few chapters of the book of Genesis. All right. Well, if people want to know more about that, check out, it was back early 2019, the January 16th episode, January 16, 2019. Talked a lot about Garden of Eden and Genesis, so people can check that out. If you go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, all the archives are there. Also, you could submit a question there or by texting the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.